Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Play Me Tape, a show where we delve song by song into the music that means something. This is our historic 50th episode. 5-0. 5-0. And we're so glad you're here. Joining me, as always, is my good pal, Darren. Darren? My name's Steve. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. And my name is Jake. No, it's Darren. Sorry. How you doing, Darren? Good. I'm doing well. How's it going? You got a big episode, don't you? Uh, it's a, it's a big one. Yeah. It is an important episode for us numerically, because we like our big, even numbers, like 5-0, 5 because it's our favorite beer. <laughs> it's your favorite beer. <laughs> mm, 50. I used to shotgun 50s, but was it my favorite beer? Yes. Might be a little harsh. So the album is a funny one today because it's a really big one in my life. And apparently it's a big one in your life. We got, or gave, I should say, a bit of a preview of this episode when we did last new year's eve our top five albums of all time list i've chosen to do a song from this album but let's be honest this episode will be the coverage of the making of the importance the aftermath and the personal connection to an album rather than a song in this case fair yeah that's fair yeah i like that i came across a reddit thread not too long ago and i'm paraphrasing but the thread's topic was something along the lines of what album would you purge from your memory on the basis that you could then listen to it again for the first time? Oh, yeah, I like that. That's cool. This is that album for me. And it's not for the reason that maybe you think. Maybe you're thinking, I love it so much that I would want to listen to that again to experience it. And I guess... You know, I mean, I, certainly there's some truth to that because of course, of course, of course. But more to the point, dude, I don't remember my first listen of this album. Right. Yeah, I don't either. I do. I remember your first listen. <laughs> you remember my first listen? Cool. Absolutely. But I don't remember mine. And it crushes me. It makes me very sad because like so many things, it was just something I threw into the CD player, listened to, and there was no sense of the importance of that moment weighed against the time scale of the rest of my life, which is kind of sad. I mean, it, it's a ridiculous thing. I mean, that you would, you know, put the needle down on a record or you would put a CD into a player and you would, you know, you would have hushed tones around and, you know, oh, this is a big deal. Who does that? How many albums can you really remember your first listen? There were a few that I, I remember. And more often than not, the reason I remember that album, those albums that I do recall the first listens are, it was the follow-up album of a band whose previous work I liked, and I really disliked this new album. Nice. <laughs> Most of the time, that's what I remember. I don't often remember the albums that I really love, th that first listen. So did you know about, we haven't even said the name of the- We have not. Maybe we should. The band of the album. Okay, so did you know of this band? Did you know this album was being released? Great question. No, not ahead of time. In fact, this album was released in the very heady year of 1991, a monstrous, monstrous year for music. Do you have any sense of what came out that year? 
Well, yeah, Nirvana's Nevermind. <laughs> yep. Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Pearl Jam 10, Soundgarden Bad Motor Finger, Metallica wow. Black Album, Holy Use mackerel. Your Illusion 1 and 2, <laughs> R.E.M. Out of Time, Sheesh. U2 Octung Baby. Like, wow. it's a huge, huge impactful year. It's the equivalent of Farrah Fawcett dying. And then Michael Jackson dying on the same day. Completely overshadowing, sure. Yeah. So it was a monstrous year. The album we're talking about is what is considered the most important or the best or the greatest shoegaze album of all time. And we'll get into an explanation of, as to what shoegaze refers to in just a minute. But the band is called My Bloody Valentine. The album is called Loveless. The song, the track in question is the opening track. It's called Only Shallow. And it's a beauty. So having said that, what was my first experience with the band, with the album? Well, as I said, I don't remember an introduction to the album per se. I remember an introduction to the band. I'd been away for a year. And when I came home, I, I came home in the summer of 1992 and it was a different home than the one that I left. And I don't mean that metaphysically. I don't mean that, you know, you can never go home again. I mean... When I came back, the entire landscape of what everyone was listening to and what everyone was into had changed because yeah. grunge came in the interim. Grunge came. Sure did. And I was in the UK for that year. And so we got a sense of it, but it didn't hit there as hard as it clearly hit here. And they had their own things that were going on. And, and so it was just a really weird culture shock to come home and to see suddenly that so much of what was going on before I left was gone and only a year had passed and it was really really an odd experience but i remember over the course of that summer being introduced to the band because some friends of mine had purchased some of their eps in fact one of them that you know tom jr <laughs> our good friend tom yep. jr there was an ep called you made me realize and it was one of the tracks on that ep which he referred to as sex before bed because, you know, that was just how good it was. And <laughs> it's pretty good. In Tom's mind, that was, the, you know, the pinnacle of all and everything, you know, sex. And obviously, I guess it being before <laughs> bed was, I, whatever. But he referred to the song as Sex Before Bed. And so Tom was famous for having these inside jokes that he would not explain or would use over and over again, regardless of the, if the people around him knew, understood, or were in on the joke. So I just kept hearing about this blah, 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 sex before bed. And it would just, it would pepper conversation. And <laughs> I really didn't know. I, I got the sense that it was a song that they were referring to. I assumed that was the name of the song. And someone had to pull, Mark had to pull me aside and say, no, no, he's talking about this, my bloody Valentine song. And what, what, what are you talking about? Who's, what are you talking about? What's my bloody Valentine? And that was my introduction. I heard the song. Mark had a couple of the EPs and then in that fall, I bought that album. I bought Loveless and obviously at some point listened to it for the first time of which I have zero memory. It is simply gone from my brain hole. But yeah, that was my introduction to the band and the, and the album. It just sort of was, it was something that had been picked up by friends. They were playing it and it, it just was in the air that summer. And then in the fall, I bought Loveless proper. So being in the UK, I mean, that's where the whole shoegaze scene was kind of happening. And I was oblivious to it at the time. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. There were a lot of bands in the UK, Ride, Slow yep. Dive. Yep. Could have gone to see a lot of them in maybe their most critical time. Yeah. Was there, right there, was right there for it. 
and had no concept it was even going on. You were in the thick of it. I was living in a dorm. I was a poor student living in a dorm and I, I didn't have the spare cash. I wasn't buying music magazines. I wasn't reading much. And the kids around you, nobody was listening to this stuff. This was not a, a scene. It was all Canadian kids listening to the CDs that they brought with uh, them. Okay. So it was a huge gaggle of Canadians listening to North American specific music. I remember after Christmas, like nine different guys came back from Christmas with Nirvana. Never mind. And so that suddenly you, you heard that and only that for a long time. Sure. I remember someone bringing in Pearl Jam 10 after Christmas and listening to that and having our heads blown wide open by that. But when we went to see shows, we went to see stuff that we were already familiar with. I remember the Black Crows coming to town and, and that being a big deal. I remember the Violent Femmes coming to town and that being a big deal. I remember Every Night I'm Ashamed. What's the band? The Cult. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God. I remember the, when the cult came, you know, or Clapton came or whatever, there were a bunch of big concerts that people went to, but I didn't have my finger on the pulse that year. I didn't, I wasn't paying close attention. I just had other stuff going on and it was just, my head was buried. And on top of that, that was when I was firmly in the slot. I was in the trenches on the Velvet Underground and they were my favorite. And, right. you know, there was nothing shaking that foundational you know, love for that band. And so if I was looking at music, I was looking to pick up the next Lou Reed album or some obscure. So when I went to record stores, I was always looking for the next bootleg that I didn't have or the next album that maybe I had slipped past me or, or whatever. Does John Cale have solo stuff? What does that look like? Is that good? I don't know. You know, and so I just had my head in the sand that entire year. The Velvet Underground is considered extremely influential in all types of music, but also in shoegaze. Sure is, yeah. Were you into any of the other precursor bands? Jesus and Mary Chain, Cocteau Twins? Uh, wow. Okay, so that's a great question. And it's really interesting because I was going to go into the history of shoegaze and I was going to talk about the, the various influences. Because when people talk about a specific genre, especially like this, you know, you can go back and you can find the seeds of it and the, the origins of it here and there. And you can find little germs of, of what it becomes later in these earlier songs, in these earlier moments. It's funny that you mentioned the Cocteau Twins because no, they fall under the heading of dream pop. Yeah. And we'll get into that. But they put on one of the worst live shows I've ever seen. Oh, you actually went to see them? <laughs> I saw the Cocteau Twins live. Wait a second. Worse than the Stone Roses? And it was terrible. Well, was anything worse than the Stone Roses? Probably not. Uh, I wouldn't say it was worse. The worst thing about it was that it was boring and I wished that I were dead. Ouch. It was in Massey Hall. It probably wasn't that long a show. I just, I was super glad I had a comfortable seat and I could at least sort of stare at the interior of the building. And if you've ever <laughs> been inside Massey Hall, you know how beautiful that venue is. Oh, it is. It's beautiful. How old and historic. And the seats aren't super comfortable, but there's padding, so I'll take it. But yeah, it was uh, it was not a good show. At the time, I didn't know the band. I wasn't a fan of the band. We went to see them on the understanding that the opener would be Luna. I was there to see Luna. Oh. And Luna could not get into Canada. They were stopped at the border. And then they were replaced by local band, The Velt, who... Oddly enough, are also sort of classified, or at least some of their albums are classified as shoegaze. But the Cocteau Twins came on later. I did not know them. I almost immediately didn't care for them. The singer sings in a very high-pitched warble, and she made it clear, and you heard mur murmurings in the crowd, that she was sick 
and her voice was off. So not only didn't, did I not love her vocal style, but she was out of tune. Right. So it was a lot. It's a lot of stuff. Do you want to know the story of your first time listening? Yes, I do. I'm <laughs> super curious because I've mentioned many times on this podcast that my memory is terrible. Well, I, I just, I don't know why I remember it. It's not super memorable in and of itself. It really isn't. It was my first year at York University. I shared a dorm room with a, a guy named Jonathan. I'm sure you remember him. Founders, yeah. Yeah, at Founders College. It was the fall of 1992. I had, I think, within just weeks of you coming up, had just bought the album. And so I think it was the only thing I was listening to at the time. And so, as I said before, you know, my go-to had for so very long been the Velvet Underground. And we had been out that night. We had been to one of the pubs. Let, let me stop you for a second. Yeah. You know, you you never played the Velvets for me. I did a bunch of times. No, you didn't. I did. I did a bunch of times. And I'll, <laughs> I, I know I did because this story will touch on that. <laughs> okay. If you say so. We had been down to pub. Yeah. From my understanding, we had tied it on a little bit. No. We were a little bit inebriated. No. And so... The beds in the dorm room, Jonathan was gone that night. He had a girlfriend on the other side of campus. And, and so he was off, you know, spending the night in her room. And so you were crashed on his bed. I was crashed on my bed. The beds are oriented sort of foot to foot. Like it was a, it was a long. I remember. A, a, a sort of a long, weirdly shaped dorm room. Yeah. Where the, the beds are in a line. We were lying there <laughs> having gotten back from pub. And I think the room for both of us was spinning. <laughs> And I got up and I said, okay, I'm putting something on that's going to be perfect for this. You got to hear this. And you were like, yeah, put in Velvet Underground. Because that was my go-to. That was always what I, what I played. And so I guess you were, you were like, you don't get to hear it any other time than when you were around me. So you were like, yeah, let's do that. Let's listen to that. And I said, no, I got something else. It's new. You're going to want to hear it. And you were like, okay. And I put it on and I don't think either of us said a word for the entire 48-minute 11 track running time <laughs> and we just we, we just i mean the lights were out that was on fairly loud but not so loud that it angered people <laughs> or that <laughs> it induced headaches but that was when I, I i remember it distinctly i remember you know putting it into the cd player and just saying wait just wait you you, I, you gotta hear this but you have no memory none yeah none and that's okay which is a shame it is what it is yeah i remember the dorm room I remember I Jonathan would usually sleep in Teresia's room. That's right. Yeah, you even remember her name. Nice. But I don't. I remember you playing Rage Against the Machine for me the first time. Okay. I remember you playing Luna. I must have borrowed Be that because I didn't know that. Bewitched for me. Yeah. The first time. I think Jonathan must have had Rage or something. I think I borrowed it from Mark. I think okay. I had it borrowed at the time. And you would throw in Galaxy 500. Yeah, that was a little later, but yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, I listened to that that year, for sure. You're right. For some reason, I remember Spaceman 3, but I don't know that you actually ever played that for me. I did have a CD that year. Yeah, okay, so there you go. And I borrowed Mark's copy of a live album that year, too. So that's the stuff I remember, but for some stupid reason, I don't remember playing or listening to Loveless, which yeah. is nuts, because it became a go-to album, one of my absolute favorites. It was number five on your list Yeah, last New Year's Eve. It was also in my top five. And I've got to say, the more time, because I've, I've now spent, we, we delayed this episode a few times. That meant that I spent more time with this album, listening to it. Me too. And it's a true infinity album for me. It's a, an album that just does not seem to tire. I don't seem to tire of it. 
regardless of the amount of listens, regardless of the time spent with it. Can I set it down and forget about it for an extended period? Yeah, I've done that. But I can also always pick it up almost at any time. And so many albums are so dependent on mood. You get in the car, you're going somewhere, you start something up and you're like, no, you know, no, the traffic's really bugging me. And I just, I, I'm not in the mood for that. Yeah. And so you shut it back down. But I, I bet to a listen from the first listen, if I start it, I more or less finish it or I finish it, you know, through to the point where I need to exit the car or go and do something. Yeah, yeah. But once it starts playing, I'm almost never in the mood to not listen to it. And it's to the point where I think it's a, it has a perpetual place in my top five or top three or top two. When I made the list almost a year ago now, there were some albums that I can see calling them my favorite now, but I can also see myself thinking, well, I haven't listened to that in a long time. Maybe that's been superseded by this album or that album. I think it's a perpetual favorite. I don't know that it ever leaves my top five ever. I think something would have to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I think something tragic would have to happen with it playing and I'd have to put it on the shelf and say, well, I can't listen to that anymore. I, I can't envision the sort of a scenario or a time in my life where I'm like, well, I'm just bored to death of that album. And I've gotten bored of a lot of albums that seemed important to me at the time. That's just life. That just happens. But I have not reached this point. And it's important to point this out because what did we just pass? The reason I chose this album, not because I wanted to do a big deal album, you know, for our number 50. I didn't, I wasn't intentionally trying to make a, a statement about it being a landmark, though it is. The reason I picked it was we realized that November marked the 30th anniversary of this album's release. And I thought, well, that made that choice for me. I had something else lined up and ready to go. I had another album, another song that I was going to do, and I was ready to go. And that announcement that it was the 30th, I, it didn't even occur to me, made me think, well, now we're doing this. Yeah, it almost came as a shock when I heard that. Well, yeah. The 30th anniversary of stuff that you lived through and that yeah. you weren't that young to live Ooh. through. <laughs> you know, we always talk about, you know, no old guy stuff, but I truly don't feel like it was 30 years ago. No. And it's an album that I think could be released today. Yes. And would be as amazing today as it was 30 years ago. Yes. I just so happened to, to have to drive 45 minutes tonight before we recorded this episode. So I listened to the album again. Absolutely perfect time frame. I also listened to it on Thursday night. And because I'd listened to it on Thursday night, I wanted to listen to it again. And the second time, tonight when I listened to it, it was more because I wanted to pick, what's my favorite song on this album? Yeah. And so I, I listened to, to the whole album and I was able to finally pinpoint, because I don't think I'd ever done that before. That's fascinating. I'm really curious to know what your favorite is. Sometimes is my favorite song. Okay. Wow. Yeah. All right. It's got this crazy, constant, crunchy, droning guitar in the background mm -hmm. while there's an acoustic playing. Right. There's just something about that background guitar that just does it for me. I just love right. that song. Right. Not to say that every single one of them isn't phenomenal, because they are, but that's the one that really stands out for me. Wow. Yeah. I chose, as the song around which we're basing this episode, I chose the first, the opening track, Only Shallow. And I did that for a reason. I did that because that was obviously mine and most people's introduction to this album. That was the only single released. I don't believe any singles were released. Oh, I think that was released as a single. 
I thought that was the only one. There were EPs released and the Glider EP and the Tremolo EP were released, but I'm not sure if they released proper singles from this album. It might, uh, you, you might be right. It may have been, but nothing from this album charted in any, in any real way. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a tragedy and kind of shocking. And we'll get into the impact of this album and the impact that it's had. And we'll get into <laughs> the sales figures. <laughs> Yeah, And, uh, you know, sort of some of its historical impact. We had set up to do an introductory list, as we're so fond of doing. Do you want to switch to that? Sure. Because there's a reason. There was a, a really good reason for the list that we have for tonight's episode. But that will become apparent as we go. This is a website called Diffuser. And the list is five bands blamed for bankrupting their labels. <laughs> if you know the band... You can see where this is going. Yeah. If you don't know where the, if you don't know the band, then it'll all make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all make sense. Buckle up. But there's a lot to talk about. Sit tight. All right. Number one, the specials or a special AKK as, or AKA as I guess they were renamed for licensing and legal reasons. Uh, the specials and two tone records specifically, they spent, <laughs> and this is going to sound familiar in a second, they spent a great deal of time and money working on their final album with Two-Tone. And when it came right down to the pinch, they had to spend some money on marketing. So they allegedly took $20,000 and spent it on marketing. And that was $20,000 that the label simply didn't have. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> wasn't a Dr. Pepper ad campaign, was it? It was, it was not that. No, <laughs> it was not. Next up is the Happy Mondays. Are you familiar with ha uh, Factory Records and the Happy Mondays? Were you a fan of theirs at all? No. All right. Uh, Factory Records was a really interesting record label. They were a Manchester label. If you're at all interested in the Manchester scene, the Madchester scene, there's a really phenomenal movie called 24-Hour Party People that you really owe it to yourself to check out. This was about Factory Records, them coming to creating this record label and then finding and making famous these bands like the Happy Mondays. And they made an Joy Division, who then became New Order. Yep. They had some big names on their label and they were a really interesting little label. There are certain things that they could have done to soften the blow of what the Happy Mondays eventually did to them. Ouch. <laughs> like, for example, Everything they did was sort of a gentleman's handshake. And so when, and I don't remember, I don't remember what the band was, whether it was the Mondays or whether it was New Order, but when one of the bands that they landed started to land in a big way, some major labels came calling and said, you know, we're kind of interested in buying from you the contract of this band and played by Steve Coogan in the, in the movie. And I don't remember what, what his name was, but the owner, the operator of, of factory records sort of said, well, you know, they're not ours to sell and we believe in loyalty here and we're, we're all in one, this, this thing together. And I don't think you're going to coax them away from factory records. Oh. And the guy's like, but what would it cost? And what, you know, how to buy out their contract? And he's like, well, we don't have a contract. Oh, <laughs> and that was it. The meeting was over idiots. and there was, there was nothing that could be done. There was nothing that had ever been signed. It was the loosest sort of gentleman's agreement that he had with all the bands. So they were just pilfered from them. <laughs> anyway, in the, in this specific case though, what Sean Ryder and the, the Happy Mondays wanted to do was they wanted to go to Barbados to record this album. So they're half a world away. Who wouldn't want to go to Barbados to record an album? They had a half a million dollars worth of the label's money. Drugs were cheap and plentiful. And, you know, 
the impetus to actually get into the studio and work was low. <laughs> so they just, it, it became the, a big black hole. And so a great deal of the label's money went into that. And it was considered a big precursor for, for them going under. Did they finish an album or, or yeah. did they just burn yeah, through they, all the money? No, they eventually finished it. But I, I think by the time they did, there really wasn't any salvaging the label. I think even even the success of the album wasn't enough. Ooh. And I think they jumped ship like immediately after it was done. Ouch. Yeah. So it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a good situation. Did that did that destroy Factory Records? Factory Records went under and that was a contributing yeah, factor to wow. it. Yeah, for sure. But again, one the bigger contributing factor is every time anyone that they that they had under them got famous <laughs> they just no. immediately jumped ship and factory records was just out like they're they're they just had nothing to show for it uh green day uh look at records 2005 they pulled out their entire back catalog over disputes about what they were being paid the the back catalog they said this is ours we're taking it we're leaving you know there was money that was owing in restitution for years allegedly <laughs> that had simply not been paid and they said well Away we go. We're Green Day. It's 2005. We're still in our heyday. See ya. And that was the end of that. Uh, Nine Inch Nails. Really similar story with Nine Inch Nails. TVT Records was the label that Nine Inch Nails were on when they released Pretty Hate Machine. And so that was 1989. There was a lot of back and forth, a lot of difficulty with the follow-up. The follow-up didn't appear. Downward Spiral, I guess. Didn't appear until, what, 94? Yeah. Late 93? Yeah. Like, it was some time between albums. And so, <laughs> I think TVT was trying to get Reznor into the studio, and, and it was a real push-pull situation. Was Reznor in the drug phase of his life? I'm not even sure. I don't know. The point is, he left to make his follow-up record for another label. So, that cost them. That cost them the sales of whatever next album and the lost money that they had spent on developing any albums that he had abandoned at the time that he left the label. How else did it screw them over? Well, the Downward Spirals release is imminent. So your TV2 records, you've got the previous album. It kind of behooves you to re-release it. Reznor apparently went to court and blocked them from doing Ooh. so. <laughs> so they just, they simply couldn't make any money off of, you know, it was, it was such a bitter relationship that he was like, nope. And that was the end of that. And finally, we come to My Bloody Valentine. I'm going to read the blurb because I think it's interesting. My Bloody Valentine's seminal shoegaze classic Loveless took a reported two years and $500,000 US to record helping empty the coffers of the band's then-label Creation Records and nearly sending it into bankruptcy. In fact, Creation dropped My Bloody Valentine soon after the disc's 1991 release and managed to survive only by selling off half the label the following year. More than two decades later, the world is still waiting for a follow-up to Loveless. So this dates it, you know, <laughs> when this article was written. This episode is going to be talking, we're, we're talking about Loveless. We're also going to be talking about myths <laughs> right? and the difficulty in getting to the truth of any given story, because you found, I found everybody who goes looking for my bloody Valentine on the web, finds certain things, certain mythical elements to this album. And one of the things that you see over and over again is the creation records bankruptcy yeah. and loveless directly contributing to that bankruptcy but we're gonna get into that a little bit later on so 
do we want to actually play the song? Hell yeah. Do we want to play the song and give it a listen? And for those of you that are unfamiliar with the song and with this album, we get it. It's not for everyone. <laughs> we understand. If you're one of those people like I was who sits down with jazz and says, hmm, I'm not sure if I get it. What do I need to listen for? What do I need to understand to appreciate? You know, there may be follow-up questions if you're sitting down with jazz. With this album, it's going to hit you, and it's going to hit you either positively or negatively. Likely, it's not going to hit you in a way that, that's going to be indifference. That's not going to be on the menu, probably. But even if you strongly dislike it and decide to fast forward through this, listen to what's going on, listen to the guitar work, and just appreciate how different this song sounds from, I don't know, everything ever. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and place it in 91 and think about what, what we had been listening to up to that point. And don't include grunge. Place it six weeks after Nevermind. Yeah. This was released six weeks after Nevermind. So it's, it's an amazing accomplishment. Last week, kind of knowing that this was coming up, I work with a fella who is in a band. He's a bassist. And they just play like... They'll play whatever they play, the cult and the chili peppers and some 80s stuff, some 90s stuff, whatever. And I said, you got to listen to this. Just give it a listen and listen to the whole song. Don't necessarily judge it in the first, you know, 30 seconds of it. Give it a chance. Mm -hmm. And so he gave it a chance and he hated it. <laughs> wow. That's not my thing, man. I'm like, right. okay. I said, okay, yeah. it's not for everybody. Yeah. He's like, what's the deal? I don't get it. I said, well, if you don't get it, you don't get it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going to force it on you. I'm not going to, I can't even really explain it. I just kind of said, well, this is, this is in my top five. He's like, really? He says, yeah. but you love Rush and Van Halen and Pink Floyd. How can you? And did you say, I'm a Renaissance man, <laughs> man? I said, I like all kinds of music. And I said, this is this is a huge, and it's not just me. It's a huge mm -hmm. album, hugely mm -hmm. influential. And yeah, he wanted no part of it. So <laughs> you would have thought I would have played Screaming Blue Messiah's form or something. Oh my God. Why? Why would you do that to me? <laughs> anyway. Having said that, hey, Darren. Yes, Jakey. Play me tape.
That was Only Shallow by My Bloody Valentine. That song is absolutely brilliant as the opening track of the album. It sets the tone of what you're in for. That's one of those songs that can either drive you away, like I said, with my friend at work, or suck you right in. And I know for me, I think it pulled me in pretty quickly. I look forward to that track. You know, if I listening to the album and I know it starts with Only Shallow, I'm excited because it's just so good. I've listened to that song, I don't know, easily over a hundred times, if mm-hmm. not more. I still can't figure out how the hell they did it. I right. cannot figure out how <laughs> those sounds are made. Yeah. One of the knocks on it is, well, I can't understand what the female voice is singing. Mm-hmm. Don't care. Her voice is just incredible and so dreamy and just so, it's a layer in the song. It's almost like another instrument. Mm -hmm. I listen to that song. I feel like it could be 75 minutes long and I'd be okay with that. Yeah. The album is 48 minutes and it could be 140. And it wouldn't bother me in the least. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest. I love it that much. I really love this song. It's a tremendous opener from the opening drum hits to closing transition into Loomer. This album is so good at transitioning from one song to the next. And this song is no different. The guitar sound, there's bass that's in there. And I spent years, years wondering what the bassist of this band did because I could never hear the bass. <laughs> I finally been able to isolate it. I know what the bass is in this song. I can't say that for every song on the album, but I can finally definitively say, oh, the bass line is this portion right here. That is both good and bad because the cacophony that is this song almost actively resists deconstruction. It doesn't want to be taken apart. And I don't, I fight against taking it apart. I've looked up the lyrics. The lyrics are mixed back not into the background, but they certainly aren't at the forefront, like, as is the norm. Do I know what the song is about? It's about sex. Sure, could be, but is it sex with someone in a dream? Is it sex with someone who's asleep at the time? Oh, hey. <laughs> that might be offensive. Certainly there are different levels of interpretation because the lyrics are so vague. And there's not a lot of them. It's three verses and they're not long verses. What does the title refer to? I don't know. Is it the shallowness of sleep? Is it, is it waking someone for sex because they're shallowly sleeping? <laughs> it's been suggested that it's an Oscar Wilde quote. If you look it up on genius.com and you look up the lyrics, it's been suggested that it comes from the picture of Dorian Gray. And the quote goes, only the shallow know themselves. Which is interesting, you know, it's saying that, you know, that of course people that are shallow know themselves because they lack, they lack depth. There's, there's no difficulty in knowing yourself because everything you are is there, it's on the surface. What does that line up with within the body of the lyrics as you look at them? <sighs> I don't know. If it's there, I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it either. I'm not smart enough to see that. All I know is from everything that we've been told, from the interviews that I've read, from the interviews that I've listened to or watched... The lyrics, they're not hugely fond of expanding on what they are and what they mean. Sometimes, whether it's a cover or whether it's misdirection, I don't know. Sometimes they'll say that the lyrics aren't hugely important and the songs aren't actually about anything. And it's really about the sound of the vocals and the vocals being used as an extension of the band, being used as an instrument themselves. What's the truth of that? I don't know. We'll never know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I agree. Really doesn't matter. 
you could spend a lot of time parsing the lyrics and maybe, maybe you'll come to a decision for yourself in terms of what the lyrics mean. Do you ever try to sing along? Sure. Not often because I don't, I, I don't feel a need to. The only thing that bothers me about the whole album is the fact that when you get a song stuck in your head, very often you'll get a guitar hook stuck in your head or you'll get the lyrics of the hook stuck in your head. I can't formulate any of the lyrics in my yeah. head. When I'm remembering the songs, I don't hear complete lyrics because when I listen to it, I don't hear complete lyrics. So when my brain is playing a song, so the track I only said was being an earworm for me t tonight and, and yesterday. It's track number six and it got stuck in my head and I couldn't shake it loose out of my brain hole. And it was just in there and it was like again and again and again. And it was great. I, I like don't, it wasn't a, a, a negative experience, but it was one of those things where it was, it was an earworm. It was stuck in my head. And as it's playing every time, all I can do is hum along because I don't, I, I can't sing along to it. I can't, I can't get wrapped up in the, in the vocals of it when I'm replaying it. It's just there. And it's just the tones of her voice and his voice. It's really hypnotic. I would describe this album and the song, I, like what you always hear, what everyone wants to tell you is swirling guitars. That's what everybody wants to tell you. Swirling guitars. I think it was author and essayist Chuck Klosterman said, whenever anyone uses the phrase swirling guitars, this record is why. Yeah. I get it, but it doesn't say swirling to me. And I don't know why. I get waves. I get crashing. The album to me feels more like it's the soundtrack of a movie that takes place underwater. And I can't explain it any better than that. And I don't think I want to. And there's nothing aquatic about it. But it just, everything comes in waves and there's that crash of surf and the way everything sort of is fuzzed out and melts in together where the bass and the guitar are so intertwined and interconnected that it's really actually difficult to differentiate what's doing what. In this song especially, in all the songs on this album, bass is a rhythm instrument. I am not given a rhythm. <laughs> From the, it's there, it's present, I hear it, but at the same time, it's there more for texture and atmosphere, maybe, than it is for rhythm. Do you find you need a pretty good stereo to really pick the bass up? I, no. If you listen to it on your phone, you're not getting any bass. I was able to, to get the bass line through earbuds. Okay. It, it's not throbbing and pulsating, but it's there enough to hear it. Because again, for years and years, I had never bothered to go looking for what the independent components of the song forming that whole were. Yeah, it's hard to do. Some of those independent components are so interesting. And I found out so much doing the research for this. And some of it's just fascinating to me. And I don't mean to get too technical, but we're going to get a little technical. But for example, the bass... And here's where you get some of that contrasting mythology. The band is an Irish-English four-piece. Singer and guitarist Kevin Shields. And Crazy Man. And Crazy Man. Singer and guitarist Belinda Butcher. Bassist Debbie Googe. What a great name. Drummer. The Googe. Colm Okisik. There was a little bit of confusion <laughs> on how to pronounce his name. Trust me. I, we think we have it right. Okisik. If not, we're so very sorry. We're not sure. It's Irish and there's accents and a lot of vowels that don't really belong with the consonants <laughs> that follow in front of and behind them. I'm not really sure. I'm trusting Wikipedia's pronunciation chart on that one. So it does kind of make sense, but yeah, it does kind of make sense. We think the point I'm making is my entire life. I, I didn't go looking 
And it's really an interesting time for us to be sitting down and doing this. If we'd had the access and the, the gear to do this podcast 10 years ago, we couldn't cover it in the kind of detail we can now. Why? Because a lot of this stuff wasn't known. Yeah. Maybe 10 years ago, but certainly the further back you go, the less is known about it. And I want to pull out, there are two contrasting quotes here. I just want to look at them really quickly because I think they make a really fun point about what people think this album was about and what it was really about. Robert Smith of The Cure was a big fan of this album. He was quoted as saying, their album Loveless is certainly one of my all-time three favorite records. It's the sound of someone, Shields, who is so driven that they're demented. And the fact that they spent so much time and money on it is so excellent. <laughs> it's really funny. I don't have a date for that quote. But Robert Smith is looking at this through one lens, and that's the lens of it took X amount of time and great big gobs of money and all kinds of studio mastering and trickery to accomplish this album. Another fan of this album, Billy Corgan. Yeah, well, you can hear it in Siamese Dream. Sure. Billy says, and I'm going to swear because Billy swore. Uh-oh. It's rare in guitar-based music that somebody does something new. At the time, everybody was like, how the fuck are they doing this? And of course, it's way simpler than anybody would imagine. <laughs> and you know what? That's the funny thing. The funny thing is that to date, there is still this fascinating contrast with how mechanically and financially this album was made. You know, a lot of people just don't have any grasp of it. And you see the same things repeated over and over again. And I'm not just talking about bloggers or Redditors or whatever people on the internet. I'm talking about interviews and articles in which people continue to talk about the bankruptcy. So just to start in a small way, look at the drum work that Colin McKeesick brings to the song we just listened to. It starts with, some people call it, refer to it as a fill. It's four hits. So I, is it fair to call it yeah. like, is it fair? <laughs> That's not a fill. Is it, fair, is it fair to call that a fill? I don't know. But one of the things that we know or have been told many times by Calm himself, the drummer, is that Only Shallow and the third song Touched were the only two songs he played percussion on live on this album. What do I mean by that? What I mean is he played that song as though you would in the studio when performing a song. And the other song that he calls out as well, he played that song as you would, you know, from beginning to end playing it through. He was at some point called away. I don't know the backstory. I've heard family emergency. I've heard personal illness. I've heard drugs. Doesn't matter. None of my business. What I know is he couldn't be present for a big chunk of the recording. So knowing this was coming, they sat in a studio and recorded a huge library of drum phrases. And the rest of the album was created by piecing together these drum phrases to create the drums for the various songs. That's pretty amazing. It was his drum sounds, but it was like a drum machine. Yes. So they sampled his drums and used them. So they didn't do anything wild and crazy. But I always wondered if it was synthesized drums because they sound so thin and reedy. That four hit fill at the beginning, or is it five hits? Is it four or is it five? Ooh. Doesn't matter. That fill at the opening, they're just such perfect hits that they're mirror images of one another. They sound synthetic because they're such perfect hits and they're so identical sounding. So here's where the contrast of history and things lost to memory or you know conflicting viewpoints comes into play. Shields remembers it differently. When he came back towards the end of recording, Shields claims that he played live two other songs. 
Coming Alone, and I think Loomer. So we know that some of the songs were canned drums, but the others, eh, <laughs> and nobody seems to know. I wonder if they were doing that that many drugs. Some of them were, and some people say that even that was overblown. <laughs> they talk about how much time they spend in the studio. They talk about the fact that they basically lived in the studio because Belinda and Kevin were more or less homeless. They, they didn't have a place of permanent residence, and so they spent all of their time in the studio because it was a, sh a space that was paid for. So they could sleep on the sofas and, you know, do whatever that they needed. To, you know, there's, there's a bathroom and a shower and a, and because they were chasing perfection and because they were chasing perfection. Have you heard the tambourine story? I've heard the tambourine story. Tell the tambourine story. Just the fact that it took them a week on this tiny little tambourine part because they were testing out multiple tambourines to get the right yeah. sound. And they yep. just chased it and chased it and chased it. And it's yep. a tiny, tiny little thing. It's for track three. It's for touched. And you can hear it. It's audible. I'm not going to say that it's it's buried in the background that you never even hear it. That's not fair. But it certainly isn't at the forefront of the track by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, one of the producers and sound engineers that Shields worked with that he actually enjoyed working with was a guy named Alan Mulder. And Alan has basically gone on record and said, you know, what we normally do in the studio is we want a tambourine sound. So you let him shake it two times, you loop it, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want it to be consistent and fit the time. And so you want to do it to a point where you get it to fit the time that you need. And then you take a very small amount of a sample of it. And then you loop that for the duration that you require. In this case, it's a very short song. It's 56 seconds, but Kevin could hear the difference and was reticent to use that sort of technology to use that kind of studio trickery. Their previous album, the first full length album was called. Isn't anything. Thank you. Isn't anything. From the outset of that album, one of the things that they wanted to do was play the entire album live as a band, meaning it wasn't one person going in and working on the guitar track and then the next person going in and working. They wanted to be in the studio as a band performing all the songs as though they were performing them live and capturing it that way yeah. in real time. Didn't pan out, but that was the goal. And so similarly on Loveless, they wanted to do it as honestly as they could. So you're going to hear wherever you look, you're going to hear a tremendous amount about the time spent and the money spent, as we've said before. Alan Mulder remembers by the time in Loveless's production that his studio came into play. The problem wasn't that Kevin was difficult. The problem wasn't that he was an a-hole or uh, an arrogant whatever. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a personality issue. The problem was that they were going through a litany of fairly low budget studios. Creation Records was an indie record label and they were going from studio to studio. And in almost every case, it ended up panning out in almost the exact same way. You're being sent to lower end studios. Things invariably don't work exactly the way they were designed to. So you're Kevin Shields, you get into the studio, you start to work on ideas, you start to do things and you say, uh, I'm hearing something in the, in the cans here. There's uh, there's a problem with the mic and the engineers turn around, yell at you and tell you you're wrong. And what do you know? You're just a guitarist. <laughs> and so that happened. Apparently that was the, the core reason. And what turned things around was Alan Mulder listened to him and said, by that point, they were in a a slightly more expensive studio space. 
And that was Alan's job and Alan was doing his job. And he said, if he said it, I would track it down and I would find out almost in every case that he was right, that he really did have the ears to detect that sort of thing and that he was spot on. And if he said there was a problem with something, there was a problem with it. The inverse of that, the relationship worked because Alan was listening to Shields and Shields complaints or concerns when Alan returned to him and said, okay, I've done the entire system check. I don't see a problem with this. It seems okay to me. Shields would let it go because if Alan was saying, okay, he'd built up trust. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Clearly, Kevin Shields had a vision and chased that vision to the nth degree. Yeah. Do you remember when we talked about the drummer who worked on the Long Winters song? Yeah. The Commander Thinks Aloud? Yeah. So we told the story about John Roderick and how the drummer came in and the drummer had the entire drum track in his head from the get-go. And so he was recording different components out of sequence. So he would say, okay, record from the left channel and he would drum and then he would record again from the middle channel and then he would record again from the right channel. And in three different cases, they were different drum performances. But then when you put them all together, he was building a 3D sound space so that when he was drumming in the left, like it, it would, it would pan from left to right in a way that was satisfying and, and cohesive and made sense. And, and John Roderick tells that story, like he couldn't believe that someone could do this in their brain and have it pan out and work yeah. <laughs> in a real way from that conceptual stage. And he just, it sounds like he just sat in and kind of one taked it all. And that was that. Well, it sounds very much like Kevin went in with things like that in his head. They were recording backing tracks before they'd done lead vocals because he knew exactly where things were going to go. Which is incredible. Yeah. And what the backing tracks were going to be. And he had some really, really interesting ideas. Now, one of the other things that he did in another mythology sort of a situation, which is, you know, is it misremembering? Is it, I don't know. The bass that we were talking about, who played bass? Debbie Googe. On the album, it's credited to Deb Googe. But Deb Googe herself says, no, 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 no. And Alan and Kevin talk about it in, a, in the same vein, but in a slightly different way. When Deb is asked about it, or has been asked about it in the past, her memory is that the band would meet in the studio and she would go to the studio and continue to go to the studio and there was simply nothing for her to do. <laughs> and so she stopped going. Oh my. And Kevin had the reins of it and, and whatever. And so Kevin's side of the story is that he had in his head the idea for what the bass should be and what it should sound like and could not in any way communicate that to her. And so he took it on himself and did the bass himself. Now, both sides agree that he did, he played the bass on the album, but just sort of the nitty gritty of how did it happen and why did it happen, you know, and the, it doesn't exactly line up, but we know that Shields himself played it. Shields chose a Steinberger bass. Remember Steinberger? We were talking about Steinberger in, when you were talking about 5150. Yeah. That was the guitar brand whose name we could not remember. It's the short headless guitar yeah. that they use at the end of... Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, a really cool, stylish, 80s-looking guitar. In this case, it, it was a bass. And the reason he chose it was that he really liked the tone in a way. <laughs> there are other basses that sound better, but the Steinberger was the most consistent. Some notes would peak and valley, and so they wouldn't have the most consistent sound across the strings. 
but the Steinberger was the most consistent and it, between him and what Alan Mulder says about him, his hearing sounds like it was before the tinnitus and the hearing damage sounds like it was just next level. Yeah. It ain't what it used to be. Cause they're all deaf now. Yeah. And we're lucky they didn't make us deaf. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Uh, we're very fortunate that you had the foresight when we finally got to see them live. I didn't see them live when they toured Loveless, and I'm very sad about that. I know that they came and went in the summer of uh, 1992, and I missed them. I didn't; I, They weren't even on my radar. I didn't know they existed at the time that they were in Toronto. But we went and saw them when they came back around again, and it was an incredible live show. Just absolutely mind-bendingly incredible. But the issue being... The volume. <laughs> I'd, I'd never been in a show before where I had looked at the building and worried about its structure Yeah. during the show. I've never heard anything that loud in my life. Yeah. And I work at an airport, and one yeah. of my favorite things to watch is Top Fuel Funny Cars. <laughs> Two of the loudest things in the world, and nothing even came close to the volume of them playing at the at the club in toronto not a quiet experience at all none of these are quiet experiences and this is far and away <laughs> mind-blowing yeah so when they when they began to tour the ep and the song you made me realize there was a section of that song that they referred to as the holocaust section yes <laughs> yeah and so first of all people make the claim that they're one of the loudest bands ever to play live they're one of the loudest bands on earth they're one of the loudest bands that has ever been and that their shows reach or exceed 130 decibels, which is unbelievable. But the Holocaust portion of the song generally amounted to usually a single chord, noise surrounding a single chord for a 20 to 30 to 40 minute stretch. I mean, wow. He was quoted as saying he would do it for as long as it took to change the audience. In the one interview I saw, he was talking about a physical change where he would wait until he could get some sort of physical reaction from people where they were lifting their hands up and, and covering their ear or whatever, just doing something physically that let him know that people had either had enough or people were being altered by the experience. But in yet another interview, I heard him say that the actual goal was at those extreme high volume levels and on what this is based, I don't know whether there's science behind this. I don't know, but he's fairly specific. When you get that kind of volume for that duration, what you can actually achieve or accomplish is remodulating brainwaves. <laughs> I know, I know that sounds absurd, but in the same way that drug or alcohol alteration can remodulate brainwaves or, you know, one of those apps that's a, a binaural sort of an app that plays binaural sounds to remodulate brainwaves. And what his contention was, was that they were altering brainwaves to reach somewhere around seven hertz, which is in the theta band of brainwaves. Do you know anything about brainwaves? No. Alpha, beta, no, theta? Gamma. Not a thing. The theta wave is about four and a half hertz to about seven hertz or seven and a half hertz. And what that means is that's the exact same state you're in when you're drowsy. <laughs> so he was using extreme levels of sound. To make people drowsy. Yeah, to induce an almost drug. That's what the, the objective wow. was. Not just with that Holocaust section, but with the extreme volume. And 
he claims that they stumbled across it almost accidentally, that they were in a smaller space and that they were playing louder than they had ever played before. And they were playing for a really long time. And by the time they cut out of it, they were giggly and they couldn't stop and they couldn't explain why they were in this headspace. They were so giggly. <laughs> extreme volume. And that's extreme volume. Yeah. It was pretty extreme. Like I said, it was mental. Yep. I was glad for the earplugs. Yeah, they were a lifesaver. You took them out, right? For just to see? Just to see. Yeah, me too. I couldn't believe the difference that they made. They, they changed the sound a fair bit. Yeah, they did. It was definitely more muffled. Not necessarily in negative ways, because when you're being punched in the face by this big, huge wall of sound, any way that it reaches you, like some of it is coming through the bone of your skull. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a strange experience that, you know, muffling it slightly in this, in this way or in that way, I mean, it's coming into your chest. I was being sonically assaulted. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. But I was okay with it. Yeah. We've teased this a number of times, but as far as the bankruptcy myth is concerned, I hear it repeated over and over again. Well, just like the myth of the the duration of recording, how long the recording took. How long did it take to record? Two years. Two years. Two years. How much How much did it cost? 250,000 pounds. 250,000 pounds. Two years. I read an article that was written for the 2017 vinyl remaster of the album. It was a Pitchfork album. Pitchfork Media. They're not a small outfit. They're a big deal. They referred to it more than once as a three-year production. Ooh. But that 250,000 pounds, or sometimes you see it converted as half a million US dollars, you see it again and again. And it, it's frustrating because if only Kevin would talk about it and dispel that if it's not true or confirm it if it is, oh, wait, he did in 2007. He laid it all out in 2007 in an interview for Magnet Magazine. Did you read this? No, but I, I have seen different numbers. Okay. So... Magnet Magazine was, it may or may not still exist. I'm not entirely certain. I don't want to do them dirty and make it seem like, <laughs> where are they now? <laughs> Final tap, where are they now? In the who gives a shit column. <laughs> yeah, they might still exist. I don't know. But I used to read it really regularly. I Apparently, I'm the one guy and nobody else read this article uh, alive. It's It's archived. It's online. I found it online without that much searching. And he said a bunch of really interesting things in that interview uh it leads off with the two things we're really known for are spending creations money and making records with loads of overdubs on them and then he goes through the rest of the article tearing those two things apart the two years we were only in the studio a year and 10 months we spent six months out of the studio touring behind 1990s glider ep so really we were only in the studio a year and four months the last two months, it was 600 pounds a day. Every studio before that was between 200 and 250 pounds a day. Do the math. It's under 140,000 pounds. Hmm. So he's the one that paid the studio time. Creation was really hands-off and was there. Well, I'll say this, especially if you read between the lines. It sounds like Alan McGee and his partners were really there running the record company as a thing of passion more than because they were exceptionally gifted in business acumen. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. They just wanted to do it for the music. I get it. So in this, he alleges that Alan McGee was someone for whom a lot of the money that he was making went straight into drugs. 
that he laid out the costs and dismisses the 250,000 pounds and says about a year after Loveless, creation got in trouble right before Oasis because Primal Scream spent a million pounds on Give Up But Don't Give Out. Oh my. We know that Ride was signed to Creation yeah. Records and Going Blank Again was huge. That was a huge financial success for them. That album gave Creation Records their first chart hit. So, and, and that was in the post-Loveless era. So we do know that they sold half of, they sold a 50% share to Sony. And that's why Loveless, when you see it released now, it'll be released by Sony and, and so on and so forth. But who else was on creation? Was Lush on creation? Oh my God. A lot of people. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but creation's Wikipedia page lists just a who's who of Lush, 1990s. Slow Dive, Swerve Driver, yeah. Ride. MBB. Wow. So they should have been rolling in it. You would think so. Oasis eventually, but that may have been when they were bought out. Medicine, not that they were huge or anything, but we like sugar. Bob Mould's sugar. Bob Mould was actually a fan of this album. And when he went on to form, when he left Husker Du and was doing solo stuff and then went on to form sugar, you can hear some of that in what they were doing. So it must've been really crazy. The Cure had their influence on Loveless and were then influenced in turn by Loveless. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the same thing, Husker Du had an impact on shoegaze. And then Bob Mould himself was later on inspired by Loveless. You know, so it, it, it must be an incredible thing to get to that point where you're making music that affects the people that affected you when you were making music, when you were dreaming of making music. You know what I mean? It just, I, I, I can't even imagine being in that position. I think Jesus and Mary Chain are kind of listed as an influence for My Bloody Valentine. Mm-hmm. But... They had their style, and Kevin Shields said he went completely opposite of that style. Yeah. We haven't said so, but so many people give the influences, and we touched on this earlier in the in the show, but so many people give the various influences that you can supposedly or directly hear if you look back through history. The Wikipedia definition of shoegaze is a subgenre of indie and alternative rock characterized by its ethereal misconception mixture of obscured vocals, guitar distortion and effects, feedback, and overwhelming volume. Overwhelming yeah. volume. It's, it's interesting and it's funny because some but not all of these apply. Ethereal mixture of obscured vocals? Okay, but in this case they're obscured, but a lot of the shoegaze acts that you look at, Medicine, they weren't super obscured on Medicine albums. Sugar and, and Bob Mould stuff the vocals are fairly front and center. Swerve Driver isn't super obscured. Teenage Fan Club, I don't think it's Ride isn't super obscured. So it's really funny. But when you look back, we've touched on Galaxy 500. They had uh, a couple of tracks that certainly pointed the way, going back further, Spaceman 3, kind of sometimes referred to as um, Godfathers of Shoegaze. You had the direct progenitors sort of under the Dream Pop banner, uh, A.R. Kane. Mm-hmm. The the band that's sort of credited with, I don't know if they coined it or if it, if the term dream pop was coined about them. Have you ever heard of A.R. Kane? Yeah, they were Mars. They did pump up the volume. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And they were financially stable enough to go off and do this. And I, honestly, I, I don't know how successful A.R. Kane were because I, really I only know them through research. I was shocked to find out about the connection with yeah. Mars and that you know, the, the later dream pop stuff that they did sounds obvious. I mean, Mars was a, was a collab. So why would it sound that similar, but it's wildly different, but you've got dream pop acts that I guess could also be, well, I don't know. 
Cocteau Twins, Jesus and Mary Chain, Husker Du. Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of these bands employed stuff like like chorus and flanger and delay pedals. And Kevin's spoken out more than once about like so many dream pop and other shoegaze bands used those pedals. And that was in no way representative of My Bloody Valentine. None of those pedals were used. The sounds that you hear on Loveless are generated through three main avenues. Reverb, the tremolo arm. Yeah. Pedal distortion. There you go. Yeah. Cumulatively, he referred to this technique that he pioneered as glide guitar. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, again, you don't really hear anyone else doing it. You don't see many examples of it elsewhere. So his guitars of choice were Fenders, the Jazzmaster, and the Jaguar. The really interesting thing is almost to a song, he would have not just a guitar of preference, but he would have a guitar that was tuned specifically for that song so that he would have guitar after guitar labeled specifically for the song that he wanted to play so that he didn't have to go through the labor of tuning the guitar each time because the specific tunings that he was using were different enough and specific enough that it was a pain in the ass for him to retune um, between songs. I didn't think to look at it. I didn't think to watch for it because I didn't know this at the time when we saw them live. Do you remember him changing guitar before and after, or, you know, sort of between every song? I kind of don't. I remember there being a bunch of guitars. So his standard MO is, uh, this is the guitar I use when I play song X, and this is the guitar I use when I play song Y. They shall not be confused and never the twain shall meet. And he's got them labeled and they're handed to him as he needs them and That's how it goes. But the birth of shoegaze goes back to, in the estimation of some people, back beyond dream pop, beyond post-punk with people like Wire and Modern Lovers and Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr., back beyond Prague, where you've got some Floyd songs, Interstellar Overdrive, for example, or, or Echoes on metal that exhibit that drone and that guitar crunch and fuzz. You've got artists like the Silver Apples and Brian Eno who are given a lot of credit. And back even further than that, when you get through things like the MC5 and the Stooges, there are certain songs where you can see some influence there. The Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows. That's such a good song. Absolutely. And it goes back all the way. A lot of people say that the birth of it really comes from Phil Spector and his production and his wall of sound technique. Dude, it goes back to the runette. It's a Phil Spector song. Yeah, the Be My Baby is a, an example of that. And Pet Sounds came along and used not just that, but those stacks and stacks and stacks of vocals. But Kevin always insisted that what he was doing wasn't studio trickery. And it wasn't, as, I, as we said at the top, like it wasn't overdose. Yeah. It wasn't sampling a million things and then feeding those things back through. What he was doing was glide guitar and he insists that um the average my bloody valentine track is about one or two guitar tracks which is insane there's a bass track there's a drum track and there's one or two guitar tracks and that's the sum total of it he says it's less than most white stripes or cramps (laughs) records he says that loveless has the same amount of tracks on it as most bands demos that's insanity it yeah. doesn't even make sense because it does sound like studio trickery. It, it really does. does. That's the thing. That's what Billy Corgan was talking yeah. about. He had pioneered a technique that was so different from what everyone was doing. When I said earlier that we couldn't have made this show 
you know, in the 90s. We couldn't have made the show, this episode in the 2000s because we simply wouldn't have known. When I had had Loveless for a time, I'd had it for weeks or months, I don't know. And I remember talking to our friend Mark and I remember saying to him, like, how did they do that? Like, what, what are they using to, like, how do they make that sound? How do they do it? And he said, I don't know. And I was like, I, I, okay, but you, like, like generally, like what do you, <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. He said, nobody knows. And nobody did know. And you know, it's clear Robert Smith had no idea how it was accomplished. And it was only years later, you know, and Billy Corgan is talking about it and, and he's shocked at the simplicity of how it's actually accomplished. And it's accomplished most of the time with a guy playing a very, very specific way. And no more than that. Go to the final track. Go listen to Soon. Listen to that violin sounding section of the hook. Dude, that's not violin. That's still that's a guitar. Insane. And it's not a guy bowing a guitar, you know, like Paige did in uh, Days and Confused. So it's not a guy using a cello or a violin bow on, a, on guitar strings. He's just using that glide guitar technique to make a sound that is almost identical to what a violin might sound like electrified. It's a trip. It's a killer song. Just defies description. There are other areas where the guitar sounds almost like that bagpipe sound that big country gets on big country. Right. You know, you almost get that texture and they used, I don't know how big country achieved that sound. Supposedly, you know, you can look it up and there were pedals involved and I don't really know, but I, I'll tell you right now that Loveless and, and that, uh, Shields used a completely different technique to get a an oddly similar sound. The other song that it sort of reminds me of is How Soon Is Now by The Smiths. There's that guitar sound that oh, I can't yeah. for the life of me figure out. Haunting. But it's the same sort of thing, right? It's like, how do they make that noise with a guitar? Nobody's been able to replicate it. Nobody. So that's a really interesting point, And that's a really interesting segue for the next thing, <laughs> the next bit of this conversation. What's the aftermath of this album? Puh. The aftermath is no follow-up album until 2013. Yeah. So they took a little time off. A little bit. But in terms of the influence of this album and the influence of Shields' guitar work, what is it? Do you know? I'm not sure I know. Do I know what? I know that the influence is growing somewhat. I know that there are a lot of people that have built an audience for this album. What did this album sell? <laughs> You know, <laughs> I don't know about 27 copies. It was a critical darling, especially in the UK. Was it ignored in the United States? I don't think that's fair. It was overshadowed in the United States. By so many different things yeah. that year, of course. It went gold in the UK, which means it sold 100,000 wow. copies. As of 2003, Rolling Stone estimated that it had sold 225,000 copies. That's it? That's it. Now that's 2003. Since then, it's been remastered twice, at least, and its reputation has grown. How has its reputation grown? Rolling Stone's 500 albums list. Where is it? Yeah, where is it? Rolling Stone has revised their, their 500 albums list twice. It was initially released in the early 2000s, and then in the mid-2000s, they revised it. And then recently, in 2019 or 2018, they revised it again. In the initial list and in the first revision, it was in the low 200s. As of right now, where does it stand on the list? 73. Not bad. Not bad, especially considering it's growing in importance rather than sliding. Yeah, yeah. Where else does it land on lists? 
This one floored me. Kevin Shields lands at 95 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Guitarist list. 95, he's not rubbing shoulders with Eddie Van Halen, but he's on the list with Eddie Van Halen. Hold on a sec, though. I think that's wrong. Yeah. I think he should be a lot higher. A lot of people do. They talk about Eddie Van Halen as an innovator. Right. You cannot tell me that Kevin Shields was not one of the greatest guitar innovators of all time. Because he was. So who believes he should be higher? Spin Magazine. Everybody. Where did Spin Magazine put him on their 100 guitarist list? Top five. Number two. Yeah. Yeah. Who was number one? Spin is Lean's alternative in indie. that's fine. So number one was Sonic Youth, was uh, Thurston Moore and whoever is the, what's his face? Uh, but Sonic Why does Kevin Shields play a Fender Jaguar? Shape uh, and tone and aesthetics, I guess. I don't know. And Sonic Youth. That, that was the influence. Okay. Yeah. But clearly there's a delineation between the stuff that came before his guitar work and then Loveless. Like there's, it, there's not much that sounds like it. You can point to what Medicine were doing. You can point to Rides Nowhere. You can point to Lush. You can point to curve you can point to so many different artists and there's a lot of fuzz there's a lot of feedback there's a lot of distortion and a lot of it's great early ride is great some early blur falls into Mm -hmm. shoegaze as a category believe it or not and so much of it is so good but it doesn't sound like loveless the guitar doesn't sound like nothing does he doesn't sound like what anyone else that i can point to so different and and so set apart and he developed a technique that's different enough that he got to name it (laughs) yeah and you can't honestly think of too many people eddie did you know eddie pioneered the tapping technique and made it made it mainstream and broke that open and i'm sure there are other things and i you know i'm sure there's a host of guitarists that have done similar things but i can't think of many I can't think of many that took the instrument and did something so very different with it. Yeah, it's very true. I think there's a technique, Lindsey Buckingham, mm-hmm. Travis picking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again. Which I don't even understand, but no. I, I've read enough about it to know that it's revered. Did he Did he pioneer that technique? Or? See, I don't think he did. I think he's known for it, but I don't think he pioneered it. Oh, okay. Whereas Kevin Shields developed that glide guitar, and it is magical and it's haunting and it's one of the most unbelievable things i've ever heard yeah and i put him right up there innovation wise with eddie van halen yeah is he capable of more technical play is he capable of doing really fast picking i I don't Don't care (laughs) he's got his thing i've seen people do acoustic covers of certain songs i've seen someone do come in alone acoustically you know, there's some stuff that I, in the guitar bridge in that song, that's impressive to me to look at, but I don't know what I'm looking at. So I know that there's a certain amount of skill required. It's not just strumming and you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not as simplistic as we're making it sound that there's more to it. And he's a more competent guitarist, but his preference is obviously not to shred. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not capable of doing that. I simply don't know. And I don't know enough about guitar and the techniques involved to know if that section on coming alone is impressive or if it's routine or if it's running, you know, I just don't know, but it's impressive enough to watch someone pick it out on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, no doubt. So what's the legacy? I mean, sailing back around to that question, I don't know what the legacy is. 
because usually with a band like the Velvet Underground, you look back and you say, well, there they were and they were kind of standing apart and they didn't make a big splash and they didn't sell a lot of records. But look here in the 80s, this happened. And look here in the 90s, this happened. And look here in the 2000s, there were these guys doing this. And you can plot these straight lines or these crooked lines sort of, you know, crawling outwards from their influence. You can see it. You can chart it. My Bloody Valentine is tougher to see. It's an amazing album. I read somewhere someone talking about the influence of the album and that they can't see the music landscape existing as it does now without Loveless existing. And I can't see my life without Loveless existing (laughs) because I've spent so much time listening to it. But I honestly don't know what its greater impact is other than a lot of people being really blown away by it and loving it. I don't hear a tremendous amount of music that's coming out in that vein or that's furthering the goals of that album or expanding on the techniques there are pockets of shoegaze that still exist japan has a a shoegaze scene that is apparently just cracking along at a decent pace there is now black gaze there's new gaze there's new gaze and there's also black gaze we've we offline you and i've talked about black gaze and black gaze is a combination of like black metal and shoegaze so you get the fuzzy guitars (laughs) And you get it mixed with black metal and the guttural lyrics. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I have a Black Gaze album and it's really weird, but I really like it. And I don't know what I like about it because I can't understand what's being said. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> but there's something about it that draws me back. I don't reach for it very often, but there are sometimes I just get that urge and I have to reach for it and I, I'm compelled to reach it for it and listen to it. Yeah, I can't see myself going for that. Those guttural <laughs> lyrics just destroy me. I, I just, yeah, no, not interested. Thanks. Uh, no, thanks. I get it. I definitely get it. I think there's a black metal band and they actually have a dog that is the, the singer, the lead singer. Noise. Because it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, can he sing? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The whole shoegaze thing is, a, it's an amazing genre of music. We're really fortunate to have lived through it. In listening to some of the stuff now, I'm really disappointed that I wasn't into it then. And and even Mm -hmm. some of the influential stuff, even stuff like, I kind of wish I'd paid more attention to you playing the Velvet Underground because I really didn't. I have no real memories of it. I know you played it, but I don't have a lot of memory. I I also remember, not only do I remember the first time you you heard Loveless, I remember the first time you heard the Velvet Underground. How do you remember this stuff? I don't know. Uh, We were in high school and I was home alone. It was sort of a Friday night, I think. And everyone was out of the house and I was doing something in the house. Like I was cleaning up the kitchen or something. And I just had it playing in the background. And I think you had the band built up in your head that they were weird and extreme and super experimental and super out there or whatever, but just not accessible. And I think I was playing Loaded in the background, which is a fairly traditional late 60s album. And you walked in and you said, what are you, what are you playing? What is that? And I'm like, oh, that's the Velvet Underground. And you're like, that's the Velvet Underground? <laughs> you know, because it, it, it was really different from the first two albums. It was a much poppier aesthetic. It was a more 60s aesthetic. And you were like, I could listen to this. This is fine. You know, this, is, this isn't a turn off. I, after that, you, you were okay. And you were like, this isn't bad. Okay you know, I'd listen to more of that. And you, you didn't give me any trouble over it any time after that because you had heard it and you were like, oh, it's, it's normal. It's just music. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not black metal. Yeah. Yeah. I do wish though that we had spent more time 
listening to bands like Sonic Youth or Dinosaur Jr. We spent a little bit of time with that stuff, but not bit, much. Yeah. Not enough. A little. I was still pretty close-minded in a lot of ways to stuff that was on the outer fringes. I, I, you know, you brought a lot of new stuff to me that I really liked, but I also think you were pretty calculated in what you, you did bring, knowing that, okay, this is pretty good stuff, and I'm pretty confident that... I was editing for your benefit. Yeah, which I appreciate, <laughs> but it also kept some stuff away from me that maybe I would have liked. I don't know. So Sonic Youth's monster album was Daydream Nation. And I borrowed one of the albums from Mark and I listened to it and it was fine. It was fine. That's it. You know, there was lots of stuff that I liked a ton more. Mercury Rev. Yep. Their early albums were kind of considered shoegaze and I preferred that more. There was so much stuff that I preferred to Sonic Youth and I, I, I didn't get to Daydream Nation until years later. And I like it a lot, but I don't even remember the name of the album that I started with. And it was maybe it was just album choice. Maybe it, it, I just started with the wrong album. And so I wouldn't say it frightened me away as much as it made me indifferent. And I just, I thought, well, okay, it's, it, it's fine, but I'm good. <laughs> I'm all right. Whatever. One of the bands that I think came out of My Bloody Valentine uh, influenced them a lot was Smashing Pumpkins. I think it's the reason why I liked them so much. And for a long time, they were definitely uh, one of my favorite bands. I never had Melancholy. I never listened to Melancholy all the way through. Billy Corgan hired Alan Mulder, whether we said this or not, to produce that. So if there's an influence, then yeah. there's a good reason for it. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to say that Siamese Dream probably had more of a loveless feel to it than than Melancholy and the Infant Sadness did. But yeah, there's a, a definite feel to it. Certain songs. Even just the flow of the album Siamese Dream kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Loveless. It lines up because 91 was the year that Gish was released. Ah, okay. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and they got fairly experimental too. They did the album uh, Pisces Iscariot, which is a really, yeah. really good album. I really liked it. it. It didn't get a whole lot of play. That was almost, I mean, really, that was almost a solo album. That sounds like it was something that he he really put together in his own bedroom. Yeah, it was really good. You know, the guitar noises, Billy Corgan's a pretty good guitarist, was pretty mm -hmm. experimental with stuff, and I really, really liked it. Going back to Loveless, I don't know, it's unmatched. There's not too many albums I can listen to start to finish over and over and over again, like Loveless. Yeah. And I, I just, same thing, it's an Infinity album. Yeah, I do put it away for extended periods of time, but I can always come back to it and I always love it every time. And I always think, man, I wish I hadn't put it away for so long. Mm -hmm. One of the things I want to know is, I don't think we have to do the whole, does it hold up? Because it, not this time. Because it sure. sure as hell holds up. But there's got to be a, a meaning to it for you. Like, what does that album mean to you in your life? That's a really difficult thing to encapsulate in just a few words. It's just A, it's always been there. B, it has this chameleon quality that it almost doesn't matter what your mood is going in. It is accepting of almost any mood you start with. Is it a breakup album? Sure. Yeah, it's a breakup album. You can put that on. You can you can cry during that album. Is it is it an altered states album? Yep. You know, we're, we were lying there in the, in the dorm room with bed spins. You can be baked out of your mind, whatever. It makes sense in those contexts too. Is it a happy, joyful album? Yep, it's that too. The only thing, the only slot I don't think it fills is, you know, it's not much to dance to. No. <laughs> it's not a dance album. No, it's really not. 
But it's one of those albums that took hold of me, kept hold of me. It's hauntingly beautiful, track by track. I've only ever seen people make complaints about one track, and that's track three that touched. It's the it's about 56 seconds long, and it's uh, it's an instrumental track. And a lot of people just see it as filler. I don't, I don't at all. And that's the only complaint I've ever really heard about the album. Other than people who just say, I don't get it. It's not my bag. For me, it is, it clicked with me from moment one. It has continued to click with me. Sassy Magazine, I am it, it is me. <laughs> you know, it gets the I am it, it is me rating. I'm not an Enya fan. So ethereal vocals aren't normally my bag, but this this works for me. A lot of times, if you if you really listen, a lot of times, the shared vocals with Kevin and Belinda Butcher, he will sing high and she will sing low. So if there are songs where the vocals have an eerie or a strange quality to them, on top of just being mixed back into the track and, and kind of already being a little washed out, that's probably the reason. Like, it's, it just, there's so much thought and just, it's a work of genius and I don't use that word very often and I don't throw that word around lightly. I am constantly amazed by it. And I have been since the day I, you know, whatever day that was, since I don't remember it, the day that I first heard it, full stop. Well, they'll never top that one. <laughs> they might never. I think if we came back and did another episode on this 30 years from now, it would still be in my top yeah. five. I think if we did an episode 60 years from now, we'll be dead, you know, because technology will be keeping oh. us alive and in our robot bodies or who knows. <laughs> I don't know. But if we came back 60 years from now, I, I would imagine it would still be in my top five. I can't imagine indifference towards this album. It, for me, anyway, I, I just, I can't see that happening. It's, it still blows my mind. On that note, I think it's about time we wrap it up. This is a big one. This is a big one. This is a long yeah. one. Well, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to join us. If you like what you heard, please consider following us and tell literally all of your friends. Until next time, keep on listening to the music that means something. End communication.